Families are stretched very thin because they are missing a ton of work and their children are miss have been missing some, in some cases, lots of school. So everyone is sort of, I, I've heard over and over again this week, everyone is at their breaking point. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. As the Omicron variant spreads rapidly, hospitalization rates for children have hit the highest levels of the pandemic in some parts of the country. More than half of Vermont hospitals report staffing shortages as this occurs. Governor Scott was joined at his weekly press conference by Dr. Rebecca Bell, a pediatric critical care doctor at the University of Vermont's Children's Hospital and president of the Vermont chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Bell warned that healthcare providers around the state, quote, feel that this is their breaking point. Today we spend the hour with Dr. Rebecca Bell to discuss COVID and kids. Dr. Becca Bell, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, let's start with where you are right now. You just finished an overnight shift at the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at the University of Vermont Medical Center. What are you seeing? with children? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, this time of year, we typically see lots of respiratory viral illnesses, uh, and this year is no different. So in young infants, we see a lot of respiratory syncytial virus or RSV, um, and that can sometimes require help breathing. Um, in the On the pediatric floor, we can use oxygen, but when they need a lot of pressure or if they need to be intubated and put on a ventilator, then they come to the pediatric ICU for that. And then we see children who have asthma who are sometimes, um, their asthma is triggered by a virus and they can get pretty sick. And if they need a lot of help breathing, then they can come to the pediatric intensive care unit for that as well. And then, this time of year, we do also see traumatic injuries, oftentimes related to, to car accidents um, or other serious types of injuries. So that's generally what we've been seeing. Um, it's pretty typical for what we see in the winter. In addition, we have had a few cases of COVID-19 in pediatric patients, um, very few so far, and some have come with COVID pneumonia so we've seen some adolescents who are unvaccinated, who have pretty serious pneumonia from COVID-19. And then we have also seen many patients who were admitting for various reasons who do test positive when we admit them for COVID. There is a lot of COVID right now. So many of our patients are swabbing positive um, when they come in and, and that requires some extra precautions um, and so that can present challenges as well. So nationally, the rate of children under five being hospitalized for COVID-19 is at the highest level of the pandemic. What has it been like in Vermont? Have those numbers tracked similarly? Well, we've had very little COVID-19 admissions, pediatric admissions this entire time, this entire pandemic, we've had very few. Um, and so, there are definitely more children who are coming into the hospital now than there have ever been who test positive for COVID. The percentage that um, of those cases that are admitted that are severe disease, at, at this moment, I would say that's actually sort of decreased in a way, like we're seeing more of that incidental 
positive COVID cases, particularly in the children under five that you mentioned. So those are the, the children who are not vaccinated, who are unable to be vaccinated because they're too young. We have not yet seen an increase in hospitalizations in that age group. We have some cases here and there as we have throughout the pandemic, but I haven't seen a big increase as of yet. Hmm. Um, how has Omicron changed the nature of the pandemic in children? Well, one is that we have so many children testing positive and, and getting infected. Um, I think time will tell to see what kind of severe disease we might see because it's coming at a time when we have had both adolescents and school-age children vaccinated. So I think just thinking about as all the waves kind of came through Vermont, you know, that first wave, that wave over the winter, no children were vaccinated, no adolescents were vaccinated. Um, and then this fall with Delta, when Delta arrived in Vermont, we were lucky to have a really high adolescent vaccination rate. So what we were experiencing in Vermont in terms of pediatric hospitalizations compared to what my colleagues who work in the South were seeing was drastically different. They were seeing a lot of unvaccinated adolescents who were getting admitted. And we didn't really see that as much. And then now as Omicron comes through, we have another segment of our pediatric population vaccinated and recently vaccinated. So about half of Vermont children between five and 11 have been vaccinated. It still leaves a lot of children who are not vaccinated. Even the adolescent population, our vaccination rate is one of the highest in the country. It's 83% or so. And that still leaves vulnerable adolescents um, as Omicron comes through. And it's, it's everywhere and everyone's getting it. And so I think it's too early to really predict or know what's going to happen in the next few weeks. Hmm. Um, let's talk about Vermont's new guidance on testing and quarantine. Um, what does it mean that we have stopped surveillance testing and contact tracing? Are we now flying blind? and we don't even know, you know what's going on in, a, say, a school classroom or a community? Yeah, so this, in your question, is particularly around schools. Um, so I think, I think Omicron has definitely changed the way we approach public health and how we think about schools in particular. So up until now, schools have gone this sort of extra mile beyond what other settings are, do, are doing or required to do in terms of really trying to do their best to prevent COVID from coming into the building, to prevent transmission, and to identify and isolate a case as quickly as possible um, so that further spread doesn't happen. And when you have very low case rates and low community transmission, one tool that can be helpful is to do surveillance testing. So when you talk about surveillance testing, what that means is that we're testing asymptomatic students or staff who have consented to be a part of the program. And maybe you're testing them once a week to identify cases that are asymptomatic cases. And then at that point, it can give us an idea of what community transmission is like, like what's happening outside the school. It's a little bit less helpful in actually 
identifying cases and isolating them during their most infectious period because it is PCR testing. So it can take one to two to three days to get the result. And so if I, you know, if I was gonna walk you through um, a situation, say, say a school's doing surveillance testing, asymptomatic screening on Wednesday, and then the, a student finds out that they're positive, let's say Friday, end of, end of the day on Friday, so it's been two days. And then they let the school know, and then the school then says, were you symptomatic? And they say, no, this is a truly asymptomatic case. Now the question is, are we capturing that student during their infectious period? If they're testing frequently and they've had negative tests up until now, then yes, we're pretty sure we're catching them during an infectious period. It's a good catch and we can um, have them isolate. If they haven't taken a test in a couple of weeks, this could be from an infection a couple of weeks ago and they aren't really even in their infectious period, but we just have to presume that they are. But remember now it's Friday or Saturday and they've been in school all week. And so then we look back and say, okay, where were you on Monday? Where were you on Tuesday? And try to do really specific contact tracing and identify their close contacts to let them know that if they're not vaccinated, they need to quarantine or, or do test to stay. The issue too, so this was really hard during the Delta variant um, and even more so during Omicron because the median incubation period is even shorter for this variant. It's around three days. So those, so if on Saturday, you're trying to figure out who this person exposed maybe on Monday, they, you know, if, if you really did catch them during an infectious period, then they may already be infected and may already exposing others. What we really need to do is give the testing tools to individuals so that they are able and, and get a rapid result. So they are able to more quickly know if they are infected, isolate themselves, let their close contacts know. So that's that's the transition with the surveillance testing. When we talk about giving, essentially devolving uh, the surveillance, and in some cases the the care giving, to the household level to individuals, uh, the pandemic has highlighted serious inequities. Uh, communities of color and low income people are suffering higher rates of infection and worse outcomes. Are you concerned that as we now ask families to manage their own infection, that low-income families or families with limited English and other marginalized groups are going to fare much worse than others? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And I definitely see that in, in practice, that those um, of lower socioeconomic status, oftentimes those who are, live in more rural areas with less access to care are the ones who tend to be also unvaccinated who often end up in the hospital. So I, I think that what, I think what we would, what the AAP Vermont is advocating for, so Vermont pediatricians is not necessarily to stop doing things or pull things back, but it's just to react to what we're seeing with this, with this new variant and to allow families to have the option to test in a way that they would like to. And I will tell you that the thing about surveillance testing that gets missed a lot is that it is an opt-in. Many, many families have chosen to never ever test their child 
I have many conversations with children admitted to the hospital that need a test and the families refuse a test. So that is a big- They refuse specifically a COVID test. They'll do all the other tests you ask for. Yes, yes, specifically the swab. They refuse a swab while receiving intensive care. Why? So- Did they share with you? um, So it varies. Yeah, so it varies. Sometimes um, they- there's some misinformation about toxins in the, in the swab. Um, oftentimes they don't, they don't want it to be in their chart. They don't want it to be sort of tracked. Um, they don't believe the result. And this is a, this is a big challenge in the healthcare setting because it really, I mean, I, we sometimes spend a lot of time having discussions about getting tested and then if, if a child is positive and they're really asymptomatic and they're there for something else, there can be a lot of anger and tension around that because we have different rules about how people can move about the hospital if they're positive, um, the, the precautions that they have to wear and the family, we still allow family at the bedside always, but it creates a more restrictive environment for the family. And so talking about this and everyday Talk, negotiating the rules around um, around families who have positive cases is really challenging, and I think I, I just point that out because I think it's a surprise to people. That, it, it is you know, surprising because I mean I should remind listeners: by the time they get to you in particular, you're you know a critical care provider. They're really really sick, and they're arguing yeah. with you about yeah. how to help their child. Yes. Yeah, what, while receiving very invasive and intensive care. Um, so this is a, a, we're in a really challenging position. And so I, I think in the, in the healthcare field, we're often, especially in the hospital, dealing with a lot of, um, you know, at, sometimes at best eye rolling uh, from, from parents um, and families about, COVID and COVID precautions and wearing a mask. And I certainly know educators and childcare providers, you know, this entire time have been constantly having to remind people to put masks on, but there's a lot of defiance around mask wearing, um, refusal for testing, and just general kind of negotiations around, you know, how to to deal with this. Um, And and so, and so that's, that's a big challenge. And I think when we're, I I bring that point up because when we're talking about testing and testing in schools, there are many schools that have not done any surveillance testing in Vermont this whole year. Um, They've chosen not to. And some schools that do a ton of surveillance testing and they're really, they're really used to it. Um, But at this point, what we know is that it's not a helpful tool really in terms of public health, like like to mitigate school-based transmission, right? I just kind of explained it. You get the information too late. Um, also, we're just testing the people who opt in, so you you're not testing the whole school community at all. It's just it's just the folks that have opted in. Um, but what it does do is that it provides a service to families so that they have information at a time when it's hard to get testing. So I do think surveillance testing has its place and especially for families that use that information to make decisions. So for instance, for a family that may have a child going to school 
and they're saying, you know, my child's exposed at school and in other places. And I have somebody at home. I have a 90 year old grandparent and I'm worried, you know, that they're vulnerable. And I, and if we found out my child had COVID, then we would do something differently. We would isolate or we would separate or we would wear masks or something like that. And so this information can be really helpful to them and their family in moving forward. Hmm. And so that is a great service. But the question is, is the school do, should the school do that? Or should we, should the public health system be able to provide tests for families so they can do that on their own if they want to? And so the idea would be that they would have rapid antigen testing available to them to use for whatever type of use they would want. So either is it asymptomatic screening, like just once a week or twice a week, you, you, you check, um, is it to, because you have symptoms, um, is it because you found out you had a close contact and you want to take a test a few days after the close contact. So this gives families a little bit more, um, flexibility in how they test and when they test um, within their family and then what they do with that information. I remember last year you spoke at the governor's press conference and the message that you delivered was that the kids are not all right. You were responding to the lockdowns and school closures. Why did you say that then? And what would you say now about how the kids are doing? Yeah, I, I really feel the same as I did earlier. Um, I think when, well, let me back up a little bit. I think in March of 2020, when by necessity, we had to really shut things down and that was a necessary thing to do at the time. Um, pediatricians really worried about children's safety. And when I met families, children were really um all over the place and just geographically. I mean, they were moving from place to place. Um, they didn't have a specific place to be or time to be. And that, that kind of, um, that kind of thing went on for months and months and months right through the summer. And then, um, once it, once fall started and they were able to start school again, some of that improved. Um, and, you know, I would say that, what families tell me and what young people tell me now is, especially the adolescents, is that it's been a really long two years. And the uncertainty, and, and I think this these past few weeks have really highlighted that um, the lack of consistency and the uncertainty of sort of what happens next is, um, is my sports game going to be canceled? Am I going to be able to go? I have a plan to go see some family, but everything is so tenuous and things have been very tenuous for young people this entire time. Um, and, and the lack of consistency is, is really, is really hard. I think for younger children, less so, I mean, for my children at this point, they're very, they're pretty little. They were, um, two and four when this started, now they're four and six. And it's just, you know, they, they're not as affected as much. Their childcare has been open this whole time. And, and um, it's just kind of a way of life now, but for the adolescents, um, you know, one of the school nurses at our state school nurse meeting the other day was reminding us that, you know, the juniors and seniors, now, juniors and seniors now have 
been really dealing with this for two years. It's kind of their entire high school existence. And I, two years is a lot in a child's life. It's a lot. Right now, we're seeing as a result of Omicron, schools are open, and I know that you've been, you know, a strong advocate for keeping schools open, but they're kind of whipsawing uh, open and closed, staffing shortages. Do you think that there should be a remote schooling option for when there are these surges, rather than these chaotic situations with, you know, emails from school at 10 o'clock at n the night before or 6 a.m. Um, how do we deal with this current situation? That's a great question. Um, and, you know, I, I don't work in a school. I was a teacher very, very briefly. I was a high school teacher, but I don't work in a school and I don't, I'm not a school administrator. And so I think those types of specific questions are best for them. But what I would say is that you mentioned staffing shortages. That is a huge problem right now. It's a huge problem in the schools. It's a huge problem in healthcare. And it is especially hard right now because vaccinated people are getting infected with COVID. And so they need to stay home and they need to isolate and they need to get better. And so the, the schools, you, you know, if you, if your staff are all out, you can't stay open. I mean, that is a limiting factor. And I think that is the biggest stress on schools right now. I think the separately is the question of with all these cases, do we, should we preemptively shut schools down because it's not safe? And that is where pediatricians say, you know, schools comparatively have tended to be safer than community. Um, we know that the surge happened actually when schools were not open. So I think those are two separate questions. I absolutely think the staffing issue is a huge problem and that schools are gonna have to close um, to deal with that. And that's really hard. We're seeing that in, in healthcare as well, a lot of scrambling to figure out how to cover while colleagues are out. Hmm. You've talked about how school nurses have been turned into COVID enforcers and are just burning out. Um, what are you seeing? What are you hearing from them? Yeah, well, school nurses, um, I mean, they're school nurses because they love their community. They love the students and educators, and they have this really wonderful role in the schools. They kind of, they know what's going on. They're really embedded there. And that relationship has been very strained over the pandemic because they have been tasked with really trying to make sure there's no COVID that comes into the building that gets transmitted. And so they are spending hours and hours of their day doing contact tracing, calling families, talking about quarantining, um, talking about testing, checking in on testing, um, checking in on symptomatic students. And what we're seeing across the state is school nurses really experiencing a lot of vitriol from families and all, that is not okay. And that's not the, you know, it's not the job that they signed up for and it's fracturing relationships. So they can't do the work that they can't do the, their work because there's not enough hours in the day for them to contact trace and do their work. But even once they get some of that time back, 
it is going, it's going to be work for them to repair some of the relationships with their families. And there's so much going on right now with mental health in youth. And as you can imagine, and there's a lot of work to be done. And so my experience working with school nurses is that they're absolutely willing to go above and beyond to do something that will be impactful. We see that all the time with school nurses. So it's really important when school nurses are being asked to do something that's not going to be that impactful that we tell them to stop. I think that's really important. And so um, they've, you know, I've had school nurses tell me they've had to call the police because of irate parents when they've asked, they've said, you know, for the fifth time that their child has to go home because they're at close contact or they have symptoms. Families are stretched very thin because they are missing a ton of work and, and their children are miss, have been missing some, in some cases, lots of school. So everyone is sort of, I, I've heard over and over again this week, everyone is at their breaking point. Mm-hmm. It's a big challenge. And even educators talking about having to constantly ask people to put their masks on correctly, all of that stuff just wears, wears you down. This week at the governor's press conference, you repeated the call by the Vermont chapter of the American Academy for Pediatrics for universal masking. And you have advocated, and the Academy has advocated, a mask mandate. But you are standing next to government officials, Governor Scott, Dr. Levine, who have pointedly declined to issue indoor mask mandates. Um, Why do you believe a mask mandate is necessary? And how do you feel about the state's response to that? Well, I've, we've certainly strongly advocated and have really supported schools um, in having universal masking in schools and in childcare, meaning everyone masks indoors, regardless of your vaccination status and regardless of the vaccination rate of the school. So that's something we've been advocating for since, since the start of the school year. Um, and, and that's another... <laughs> that's another area where school officials have received, received, especially in the fall, a ton of pushback from families on. And, um, you know, I, I really feel for them in that case, I witnessed some of that at school board meetings. Um, in terms of a, a broader mask mandate, everyone should absolutely be wearing a mask indoors. Um, and I think that that message is, clear now from the state. I think it maybe wasn't so clear um, a few months ago, but everyone absolutely should be wearing a mask indoors. Whether or not how you enforce that, I think I would just, I would leave to the policymakers and the public health experts about how that's best enforced. But Well, I mean, this, this state recommends it, but doesn't require it. And mm-hmm. um, I have certainly seen locally, it's now a town by town decision to be renewed every 30 days causing these very, you know, um, fractious select board meetings uh, where this is being argued over and over again. And I I will just say that in the towns near me where there's a mask mandate, everybody's masked in the stores I go to. In my town, uh, in Waterbury, where there's no mask mandate, people are randomly masked in the stores. So what the state has done is what I see around me. It's just recommended but not required. So 
I'm just curious, and I know that you have been, uh, let's talk, you mentioned some of these select board meetings that you've been a part of, uh, one of which made the news last summer up in Richford, where people were shouting at the select board, and um, you kind of intervened to defend the uh, the local officials and said, uh, telling people, well, if you want to be mad at somebody, be mad at me. Um, is this getting... Is it changing? Is it getting any better? From what you're describing, it is just constant conflict, even in your own, even in the hospital. It really is. Um, just the constant discussion about masking, even in the hospital where, you know, we, we do require it, but um, people sometimes refuse or, um, you know, the other thing I would just add is that when folks are in the hospital, it's a stressful time for them. And it's a stressful time for their families. And so adding this on, um, and this is where I really relate to the school nurses saying they feel like they're COVID enforcers because those of us that work in the hospital, um, in particular, the nurses are constantly having to ask people, um, you know, to put their masks on or, you know, to follow, you know, we can, we can get you food. Let us get you food. Don't go to the cafeteria if you have COVID. <laughs> um, and so, and, and, and sometimes limiting visitor, um, vis the visitors to see the patient if they have COVID or if the parent has COVID. So this is, I think this is the type of thing that really wears us down at the beginning of the pandemic. There was just a sense that we were all in this together. And I think every Every sector has had, you know, their moment where, <laughs> where there's been some recognition of, of the work that you do. And now I think all of us, you know, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's other essential services, um, where you're just constantly in conflict with folks. Um, and so I think that's the part that's so hard is that there isn't really this sense of unity like there was early in the pandemic. There's, um, you know, what, I, what I'd say is this, this was not my idea. I think this is the main health commissioner spoke recently about, um, I thought this was a great visual that it's sort of like we're all driving on a highway and we all drive on a highway. We kind of assume that the speed that we're going is like the right speed. And when people blow past us, we think that is, you are going way too fast. And when people are going way too slow, you think you're going too slow, you're going to cause an accident. And we all have our own sort of perspective of where we are in the pandemic and what we feel comfortable with, what we're worried about. And then we are all sort of judging others in terms of where they are and how they feel and, and some of the you know, precautions that some people take and uh, others feel that people are, are too lax. And so I, I always think about that visual when I think about where people are and we're, you know, working in healthcare, I see both ends of that. Right. Um, so I, I try really hard to just um, remember that people are just in, in different places and, and they truly are even in Vermont really. So I, I'm curious, um, what you say to people who are unvaccinated, if there's any, you know, we're a year in now, these folks have been hearing the messaging, the scolding, um, the prodding, the, they've had vax mandates at work, some of them. 
Is there anything that you've done as a physician that you kind of felt worked where other things had not to get through to folks? I think folks, especially if we're talking about vaccinating kids, I think folks really want to hear a personal recommendation. So I always tell all physicians, all our pediatric residents, it never hurts to make that personal recommendation. So don't assume just because somebody is in your care right now, they come to the hospital and they're not vaccinated, that they won't be vaccinated. Never assume that. Even years into this, never assume that. What they may be waiting to hear is for you to say, you know, I'm caring for your child in this situation. I really want your child to be protected from COVID-19 and I would really like for them to get the vaccine. I strongly recommend that they get that. What do you think about that? So it seems so simple, but sometimes just saying, I know your child, I'm caring for your child, and I'm recommending this can be really helpful. Public health messaging is really important, but I think we're at the phase in the pandemic where some of this one-on-one conversation is going to be what um, convinces people, and it is slow going. It's too slow for us in a pandemic, right? We We need it to be faster. And a lot of people just need... They just need time. So some folks have felt like, well, this is, it's too soon. Um, and other folks, I mean, it, there's a variety of, of, I have families that have children that are healthy and they say, my child's perfectly healthy. They don't need it. And then on the other spectrum, I have families who, whose children have a lot of medical complexity and they, they too sometimes don't want to vaccinate them. Um, and those are the patients we really, really worry about. And a lot of it for children, a lot of it is correlates with their parents' vaccine status. So if the parents are not vaccinated, they're very unlikely to vaccinate their children. Do you, so think, had, do you think that COVID vaccine should be or will be one of the mandatory immunizations required for school? That is a great question. And I would say from a very, from a personal standpoint, not speaking on behalf of anybody or, or anything, I just don't see how it, how it can't be. I think that eventually it really, it really needs to be. I mean, look at the effect that it's had on, on our, um, on our society. Um, there are some complexities though to this, and it's not as simple as just saying, okay, this is required. So first of all, um, I do feel like we, it needs to be FDA approved for the age group that of, of course that you're, um, I believe that you're mandating it for. The second that I think is often overlooked is that there are always exemptions to mandates and there are sometimes unintentional consequences that happen when you mandate something. So, for, I'll give you a, an example. In California, they removed, so there are three ways to have exemptions for vaccines for school entry, medical exemption, um, philosophic exemptions, and religious exemptions. In, in Vermont, we just have medical and religious. In California, they also got rid of their religious, they got rid of their religious exemptions recently, and their medical exemptions went way up. And then they looked and saw that there were some providers throughout the state who were getting paid to write medical exemptions. So there, there are unintentional consequences that can happen sometimes. And so I think all of that needs to be really well thought out. I think it will be, 
I think it's going to be a while before something like this would would happen because can, I think that needs to be thought out. Can you just remind us how many child required childhood immunizations are there for a child to go to school roughly? I'm going to say the wrong number because they aren't all required. Okay. So I'm not sure offhand. I'm sorry. It's a long list, as I recall. It's pretty long, yeah. 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 Which is which is why the idea of adding one um, or carving it out. Well, I want to move on. Uh, you referenced uh, at the governor's press conference what you called the youth mental health crisis. Um, talk about what that is. What's going on around mental health and kids? Well, before even before the pandemic, there has there really is this escalating concern about youth and mental health. So, um, increased levels of anxiety and depression, increased rates of suicide attempts, suicide deaths. So, all of that was in place before the pandemic. I don't want to blame all of this on the pandemic, and then that has only worsened during the pandemic. What we're seeing in Vermont are really young people who and their families who can't get the services that they need. We see young people who really need to be in a safe place. So, um, and they are sitting in emergency departments um, for a long time looking for, well, folks look for placement for them. Um, we have families that are really just tapped out in terms of trying to manage their child's um, mental health and then all of the other things <laughs> that are happening in their lives. And uh, so what we see in the in the pediatric ICU are suicide attempts. And um, I do uh, my other work is in suicide prevention and the the levels of the rates of being seen for, for self-harm or for suicide attempts um, have certainly gone up. Um, they, they were going up before the pandemic and they're continuing to go up now. It's very concerning. Hmm. There's kind of emerged, um, I mean, the messaging around Omicron, a certain fatalism that this idea that, well, everyone's gonna get it. And we also hear, uh, well, it's not that bad, it's mild. Um, it's how do you respond to both of those? Is it true that basically everybody's going to get it and get it? Or is it possible to stay healthy? And what would it take to do that? I think for the first one, um, I, I think it's pretty inev inevitable that many of us are going to be infected. And I think that that is okay. It's different, right? Part of it's different than things were at the beginning of the pandemic. We do have vaccines and we have excellent vaccines. I don't want to lose sight of how amazing and effective these vaccines are preventing severe infection. And this is severe disease. This is really what we were hoping for at the beginning of the pandemic. And, um, and they work really well and they still work against Omicron. So I don't want people to lose faith in the vaccine because they're hearing about vaccinated people becoming infected. With respiratory viruses, it is really hard to prevent in infection completely because the droplets sort of enter our mucous membranes and the virus can replicate there as your body is sort of recognizing and reacting to it. So this is not at all a failure of vaccines um, that we have vaccinated folks who are getting in, getting infected. And 
you know, what this is starting to look like is what we see commonly as a pediatrician and a pediatric intensivist. What I am used to seeing is common respiratory viruses, meaning respiratory viruses that people get every winter, things like respiratory syncytial virus and influenza, and lots and lots and lots of people get it. Most people don't get tested for these things, right? Unless it's gonna change management. You don't really know, did you have RSV? Did you have rhinovirus? Did you have adenovirus? You don't really know. Um, lots and lots of people get it. Some people get very sick from it and that's my population. Um, and, but, but it's very, very prevalent. So that's, that is, that is where I think we are going to be headed with SARS-CoV-2 is that we are, it's going to be prevalent. And our hope is that we can keep people protected with vaccination. There was an op-ed piece uh, in the New York Times this week that was headlined as an ER doctor. I feel healthcare. I fear healthcare collapse more than Omicron. Do you share that concern? Yeah, I do. Uh, I think again at the beginning of the pandemic, we really um, everyone had more more energy, and I think I think just just really as a healthcare provider, seeing the vaccines, seeing how effective they worked, being so excited about vaccination. And now this far into the pandemic, going and and being stressed at work because you know there's um, a stress on the on the bed system, there's a stress on you know how much space that we have. And a lot of that is driven by adults who are unvaccinated and who are really sick. That is that is really, really hard. And then it's hard to go home and say, I'm, you know, I'm putting all this, these restrictions on myself and my family when, um, you know, when I know there are, there are folks that are just um, still haven't gotten vaccinated. And that's, that's a huge challenge. The staffing challenge is truly really a crisis. Um, and we have um, nursing shortages our respiratory therapists. I think this is like an amazing field. If you don't know, if you don't know, if you know a respiratory therapists, please give them a hug. They have been through a lot this pandemic, um, and they are they are really burned out. And again, they're they're in every room, every really sick patient's room. Everyone who needs a respiratory therapist. I mean, they're in there. They're just constantly caring for COVID patients, and it's different at the beginning when we had no tools and it's much harder now to be doing this work all day long and be stressed about it. Um, when, so when we have a vaccine. I'm hearing, um, is it the case now that asymptomatic COVID positive healthcare workers, nurses, and, and doctors have been asked to continue to work? Are we at so that not, point? Not in Vermont that I know of. Um, but the CDC did put out a, um, a guide for this. And so they have, there's three categories for healthcare workers. Um, there's sort of, I, I'm blanking on the first category, but it's just like in normal times, this is how long you should be out for with, with COVID in um, contingency. And then they have crisis and the crisis column is you work. That's, that's the crisis column. We're not, Vermont is not there, but it wouldn't surprise me that there may be other places in the country that have hit crisis mode 
and they may be following that that column in the CDC guidance. So no hospitals in Vermont are in that crisis mode at this point. I mean, we we did get National Guard people to work in in I think Bennington, uh, the hospitals, but not. Uh, and the stress that you see in Burlington um, is due to staffing shortages primarily or spikes in the number of patients? Uh, I think it's a real mixture of things. So I, so we we're doing okay from a, a bed perspective in terms of COVID patients. The issue and you keep hearing about is that life, you know, life is going on for folks and people need a lot of care outside of COVID. And so, and this is a busy time of year for us generally with other respiratory viruses. So busy time of year, people needing the care that they need. Um, some in, in pediatrics, I would say you've probably heard that in the adult population, there's still worries about delay of care that happened, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. At this point, we're not seeing that in the pediatric population. Their their needs have were really have been caught up and, and well met in terms of, of their health care. Um, and then truly sometimes these interactions with families and patients, especially around either um, a patient who's COVID positive or just sometimes around the protocols and the masking and stuff that adds, that certainly adds to the stress. And then just the worry with Omicron, we're all expecting to get infected. And so just trying to figure out how we are going to work around that um, while we stay home during our infectious period. Uh, And that's all of that is uncertain and unknown. So that adds another layer layer of stress. It's hard to plan. It's hard to cover where we have to make contingency plans for how we would, how we would cover each other um, if needed. What do you do with your own family um, in terms of what you allow and don't allow to keep everyone safe? That's a great question. So um, I have two children. One just recently became fully vaccinated and the other one is too young to be vaccinated. They are both um, in school. So one's in school full-time, one's in childcare full-time. And throughout the pandemic, I've prioritized those settings and didn't want to do anything that might um, compromise that. And so we don't, for most of the pandemic, we didn't do really do indoor gatherings with other people outside of our family. We did do a lot of outdoor stuff. Um, and really, again, the, the school and the childcare setting is, is where they've, where they've been at. I never pulled them out of childcare. They were both in childcare when the pandemic started, but they kept, they stayed in childcare and knowing that again, the beginning of the pandemic that they were, could be a risk for the unvaccinated grandparents. We really limited contact with their grandparents. I mean, that was really hard that, you know, I had these kids that we really couldn't go and visit their grandparents because, um, because I was af- worried that they being in school or being in childcare may pass on COVID to them. And then when the grandparents got vaccinated, they were able to go visit them, which has, has been really, really great. So I, we just keep in mind who the most vulnerable people in our family is. And that's, even though I have an unvaccinated child, it's really the older, older people in our family. So we're just careful about that. As you look down further down the road than perhaps you can see right now, what does it look like to you? Um, 
when this this surge passes um what is that path ahead what should people be kind of hanging on in anticipation of and i guess this is the conversation about what it means to for covid to be endemic yeah i've learned never to try to predict anything <laughs> in a pandemic but I do think that what we'll eventually see is that um, COVID will be a lot like our other seasonal intermittent respiratory viruses in that um, just someday, I think it'll be just like when people say, oh, I'm out of work, I have the flu. And then you say, do you really have the flu? Did you get tested? I'm like, no, it just feels like the flu that I do think we're gonna get there with COVID and that we're not going to be testing as much I think that there will be always worries about vari different variants um, hitting certain areas that are vulnerable. Um, I think that there's always going to be discussions about whether we're calling them boosters or additional doses or your, or your COVID vaccine that we don't know what that frequency is going to be. But um, I, we're never going to forget about COVID for sure. I mean, it's always going to be with us and we're going to constantly be having discussions about um, potential need for boosters, making sure, you know, with our pediatric population that they're all getting vaccinated. And there may be moments where we have, um, we have to take stronger mitigation measures, right? Like there may be a time where we're not masking indoors anymore, but then it may be that, some months later, we, we have to. And I think that just being clear about that, that we need to be responsive to what's going on. Um, and we may need to mask up more, and we may need to limit contact more with, with our loved ones who are vulnerable. Um, and that may come and go maybe for the rest of our lives. So finally, what gives you hope? What keeps you going in the midst of this storm? Well, I, I think First and foremost, my, you know, my colleagues throughout this have been incredible. And the way, um, the way you just see people, people pull together and work together in such a really trying time um, is amazing. And I, I know people overuse the word unprecedented, but we really didn't know. And, and, and there's still a lot of uncertainty, but to be able to move through the world and do our work and be with our families and just not knowing what's ahead. Um, and the way we support each other is, is just really, really wonderful. And I think, um, I think just seeing the way people, people have pulled together and supported each other. I mean, in every setting, in every sector, COVID has really upended everything. And so watching people sort of figure out how to navigate that, um, the, the vaccination, I keep talking about vaccines, what an amazing thing that happened over a short period of time. So that gave me great hope. Hmm. Well, Dr. Rebecca Bell, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks very much. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.